When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Studying Ether 12 through 15 this week is a lot like our experience studying 4th Nephi, which begins with this crescendo in Christ to a time of perfect peace, a mini-millennium, but then descends towards destruction by the end. And the same happens this week in Ether. Ether 12, which we studied in the first part of this lesson, is such a masterpiece. I hope you felt that as we studied it together. But it is followed with the destruction of the Jaredite civilization in 13, 14, and 15. And it comes crashing down quickly, right before Ether's eyes. Now Moroni knows he has to come off the mountaintop and get back down into the valley of the shadow of death. He says in 13.1, Now I, Moroni, proceed to finish my record concerning the destruction of the people of whom I have been writing. You see, Ether 12 was just a long interruption. A beautiful one. I'm so glad he interrupted the narrative so he could give us that incredible explanation of faith since that's what Ether had been talking about. But do you remember where chapter 12 began? That Ether, who spent his life during the days of Coriantumr, and Coriantumr was king over all the land, and Ether was a prophet of the Lord. So you have a king on one side and a prophet on the other. In fact, there may be more connections between these two than just the time period. Back in chapter 11, verse 17, we don't have a name here, but there's been this reign of kings. And remember how we saw last time, the middle of Ether is so much about secret combinations and intrigue in search of power and gain. And so they're constantly fighting one another over the kingdom. And that's exactly what happens at the end of chapter 11. But in chapter 11, verse 17, there arose another mighty man. We don't get his name here. We simply realize that he's a descendant of the brother of Jared. And he overthrows the king and obtains the kingdom. And it's that line of ex-kings that then spends the rest of their days in captivity. From the king that is overthrown, Moran, to his son, Coriantor, to his son, Ether. Which lets you know something about Ether. If the kingdom hadn't been usurped by this unnamed mighty man, then King Moran, grandpa, the kingdom would have passed down to his son, Coriantor and his grandson Ether. It would have been King Ether. Instead, it is King Coriantumr, which makes me wonder, is Coriantumr in the line of that mighty man who usurped the throne? Was the unnamed individual in 1117 Coriantumr's father or grandfather? Are we seeing two rival lines of potential kingship here, which might help explain why Coriantumr would not want to accept Ether's call to repent at all. 
even when ether doesn't seem to be after a mortal throne at all, only a divine one. However it happened, by 12 verse 2, ether the prophet comes forth in the days of Coriantumr and prophesies unto the people. Now in the first part of this, we saw that his prophecy was not just repentance like his predecessors, but rather faith unto repentance. But notice a few more details about him that will help introduce the rest of what he's going to write in 13, 14, and 15. Ether 12, verse 2, he began to prophesy unto the people, for he could not be restrained because of the Spirit of the Lord which was in him. I love that he couldn't be stopped, couldn't be held back, couldn't be restrained because the Spirit was so strong. Sure, wicked kings and secret combinations can place a restraining order on the Word of God, but because of God's Spirit, it cannot be restrained. Preacher's going to preach. Prophet's going to prophesy. And it's the Spirit that is compelling this. There's a great passage in Jeremiah that fits this description really well. Remember, Jeremiah was a contemporary with Lehi. And he was probably a little jealous that Lehi got to leave. Because if Lehi was going to be killed for crying repentance in Jerusalem, well, you get a sense of what Jeremiah is going to face there. And sure enough, his book is full of persecution. At one point he says, I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Well, fools mock, but they shall mourn, we've seen. But they were mocking Jeremiah to the point that he was done. He's ready to take off the missionary tag, hang up the suit and tie, and be done with the whole thing. He says in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, God, nor speak any more in his name. I'm not going to do it. I'm in derision daily. I'm being mocked constantly. I'm being persecuted and opposed. So I'm finished. But the irony there? He couldn't even last an entire verse because the verse begins with him saying, nope, I'm done. And the verse ends with this. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. I love Jeremiah for that. Of recognizing what he was up against and being daunted by it but not giving up on things, not even lasting a single verse in his desire to just throw in the towel. I couldn't. I tried. I wanted to. But his word was in my heart like fire in the bones. People talk about, oh, it's so tiring to share the gospel. No, in his case, it was more tiring to stop sharing the gospel. Missionaries that say, it's so hard to open my mouth. Jeremiah would look at you going, what? Isn't it harder to keep it closed? I could not stay. I had to go and share the message. And that's Ether to a T. He couldn't be restrained because of the Spirit of the Lord which was in him. Verse 3, he cried from the morning even until the going down of the sun with that message that we discussed last week. Believe in God unto repentance. But to do it from sunup to sundown, you remember the word that the Lord used with Nephi, son of Helaman, in Helaman chapter 10? Right before giving him the sealing power, he said, because you have served me with such unweariness. That's sunup to sundown kind of discipleship. The way Ammon describes it after his mission, behold, the field was ripe, and blessed are ye, my brothers, my fellow companions, for ye did thrust in the sickle and did reap with your might, yea, all the day long did ye labor, and behold the number of your sheaves. Or the Lord of the vineyard in Jacob 5, what could I have done more in my vineyard? Have I slackened mine hand that I have not nourished it? Nay, I have stretched forth mine hand almost all the day long. 
and the end draweth nigh. Now you might think, well, he didn't do it all the day long. He only did it almost all the day long. He must have taken some breaks in the meantime. No, he only said almost because the day wasn't over yet. The sun hadn't gone down. The end draweth nigh, he says at the end of that verse. Oh, I'm planning on working all day, all the day long. I'm just not there yet. I'm not finished with my work. One chapter later, when the work is over, Jacob 6, he says, How merciful is our God unto us, for he remembereth the house of Israel, both roots and branches, and he stretches forth his hands unto them all the day long. Ether here is following a good example, that of the Lord himself, that never takes time off from bringing people homeward. Now we already saw, his initial message is faith unto repentance, lest we be destroyed. But then when you get to chapter 13, and Moroni picks up with that message, notice the people's response to it. Verse 2, behold, they rejected all the words of Ether. Now as we saw last time, part of the reason for this rejection is that they couldn't see with the eye of, of flesh what they were supposed to see first with the eye of faith. But what else did Ether's message entail? He truly told them of all things from the beginning of man, and that after the waters had receded from off the face of this land, it became a choice land above all other lands, a chosen land of the Lord, wherefore the Lord would have that all men should serve him who dwell upon the face thereof. See why they wouldn't like that message? He's talking about the promised land, which requires that we keep the promises of God, whereas he calls it here a choice land above all others, which requires that we choose the God of this land, who is Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he taught them that this would be the place of the new Jerusalem, which should come down out of heaven, the holy sanctuary of the Lord. But if we want to bring heaven down to earth, we're going to need to bring earth up towards heaven. We have to connect the two by the way we live our lives, by the way we follow Christ. And Ether's audience was unwilling to do so. In verse 4, he saw the days of Christ. He spake concerning a new Jerusalem upon this land. Just like Moroni, Ether is putting his eggs in the restorations basket. The last days, this will finally come. But we can prepare for those days. Verse 5, he spake concerning the house of Israel. And the Jerusalem from whence Lehi should come. You remember earlier prophets had gotten more and more specific about oh, it's going to be destruction. And then a little bit more. It's going to be utter destruction. Then a little bit later. It's going to be utter destruction to the point that another civilization will come and occupy this land. Well, here it's most specific of all. That new group that will come to possess the land will be the house of Israel. And they'll be leaving behind the land of the old Jerusalem to come to the land of the new Jerusalem. That Jerusalem from whence Lehi should come, it would be destroyed, it would be built up again, a holy city unto the Lord. But because it was rebuilt, it would be a renewed Jerusalem, but not the new Jerusalem. It could not be a new Jerusalem, for it had been in a time of old. But it should be built up again and become a holy city of the Lord, and it should be built unto the house of Israel. That's old world. That's old Jerusalem. But in verse 6, a new Jerusalem would be built up upon this land in the new world, unto the remnant of the seed of Joseph, for which things there has been a type. In other words, we should have seen this coming. This has been foreshadowed. He explains that in verse 7. For as Joseph, son of Jacob, brought his father down into the land of Egypt, and we could say, and the rest of the family as well, 
Even so, he died there in a new land, the land of Egypt, new for them. And in a similar way, the Lord brought a remnant of the seed of Joseph out of the land of Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, that he might be merciful unto the seed of Joseph, that they should perish not, even as he was merciful unto the father of Joseph, that he should perish not. So you see the typology there? Joseph brought his family into Egypt to preserve their lives. And again, a remnant of the seed of Joseph, namely Lehi and his family, would also come to a new place to be able to preserve the entire family of Israel, spiritually speaking. In verse 8, he goes on, The remnant of the house of Joseph shall be built upon this land. It shall be a land of their inheritance. And they shall build up a holy city unto the Lord, the new Jerusalem here, like unto the Jerusalem of old, there. And they shall no more be confounded until the end come when the earth shall pass away. And there shall be a new heaven and a new earth, and they shall be like unto the old, save the old have passed away and all things have become new. And then cometh the new Jerusalem. Now this is where it gets a little tricky. Up to this point, he's been comparing old and new Jerusalem kind of horizontally. One's old world, one's new world. Now he's going to shift and talk about a new Jerusalem as compared to an older Jerusalem vertically. A Zion from above compared to a Zion from below, if we can put it in those terms. So in verse 10, when he says, then cometh the new Jerusalem, otherwise we'd scratch our heads going, wait, wait, wait. We've already talked about building a new Jerusalem. And that's the point. Up to this point, it's been a new Jerusalem that is being built. Now we're talking about a new Jerusalem that is being brought. But it can't get brought until it's been built. I hope this is making sense. The new Jerusalem that will come is going to come to meet a new Jerusalem that has been constructed. So build or brought, come or construct. There's work to be done on our end in order to prepare the earth for the coming of Christ and the coming of Zion from above. You see here in verse 10, the new Jerusalem becomes this metaphor for Zion, the people of God, the city of Enoch, we could even say. And in verse 10, it's described as, blessed are they who dwell therein, for it is they whose garments are white, not because they were flawless and sinless, but rather white through the blood of the lamb. Only through Jesus and his atonement are we cleansed. They are they who are numbered among the remnant of the seed of Joseph, who are of the house of Israel. And you see that group, that heavenly new Jerusalem, then verse 11 meets an older group. Then also cometh the Jerusalem of old, and the inhabitants thereof. Blessed are they, for they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. See the similarities between new Jerusalem in 10 and old Jerusalem in 11? We've all been cleansed by Christ. They are they who were scattered and gathered in from the four quarters of the earth, from the north countries. They're partakers of the fulfilling of the covenant which God made with their father Abraham. And when these things come, bringeth to pass the scripture which saith, There are they who were first who shall be last, and there are they who are last who shall be first. See what Ether is trying to explain here? There's an old Jerusalem in the old world. That would be the site of the scattering. There will be a new Jerusalem in the new world. That will be the site of the gathering. But there's also the righteous and redeemed in Christ who went before, and the righteous and redeemed in Christ who will come after. 
There are those who are building the new Jerusalem upon the earth in order to prepare it for the return of a new Jerusalem from above. Zion from below, preparing for the coming of Zion from above. We always talk about the rainbow in terms of the sign given to Noah, that God would not flood the earth again with water. But if you look at the Joseph Smith translation of those verses, the rainbow was actually a reminder of a previous covenant made to Enoch. And the covenant was, and this is such a perfect visual for the rainbow, that just as Zion was caught up to heaven, so shall it someday return. Isn't that what rainbows do? They either come up to heaven and return to earth, or if it's just half a rainbow, they connect heaven and earth together. And that's what Zion is supposed to do. It's not just a promise to Noah, I won't flood the earth. It's a promise to Enoch, I'll bring you back when the earth becomes the celestial kingdom. But for that Zion to be brought, another Zion must first be built. And that's where we roll up our sleeves and start building, start gathering. Think about the end of Doctrine and Covenants section 65, where the Lord says, call upon the Lord. In other words, Joseph, early saints, call on me, pray for this, that his kingdom may go forth upon the earth, that the inhabitants thereof may receive it and be prepared for the days to come in the which the Son of Man shall come down in heaven, clothed in the brightness of his glory, to meet the kingdom of God, which is set up on the earth. See what the Lord is asking the saints to pray for and work towards? We want the kingdom to go forth on the earth so the Lord can bring his kingdom to the earth. You see these two side by side again when Joseph responds to that petition by offering exactly that prayer. So the next verse, wherefore, or in consequence of what you just asked me to do, I'll do it immediately. Wherefore, may the kingdom of God go forth. That's the one we build. That the kingdom of heaven may come. That's the one that is brought. That thou, O God, mayest be glorified in heaven, sight of that Jerusalem, so on earth, sight of this Jerusalem, that thine enemies may be subdued, for thine is the honor, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the prayer of the saints. That is the prayer of Enoch. That is the prayer of Ether here, and hopefully the prayer of each one of us. May the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come. Build and bring construct so it may come. New Jerusalem, old Jerusalem, either one, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Now verse 13, Moroni was about to write more. He wanted to. Sounds a lot like his father who wanted to keep writing too and was sometimes forbidden. Here Moroni is forbidden. But great and marvelous were the prophecies of Ether. And if that little glimpse we just got in the last few verses is a part of that, wow, I wish I knew more. Talk about the destiny of the New Jerusalem to be built upon the American continent. There is work to be done here. But his immediate audience esteemed him as not and cast him out. And he hid himself in the cavity of a rock by day. And by night he went forth viewing the things which should come upon the people. Again, nobody understands this lifestyle better than Moroni, who's stuck doing similar things. And here is where Ether's prophecy turns into Ether's history instead. And it all revolves around that rival, Coriantumr. 
Now, again, assuming that this is part of that line of, of mighty men who usurped the throne. Remember the one detail we saw about that original mighty man who did that in Ether 11, verse 17? He was a direct descendant of the brother of Jared. So if that line's continuing to Coriantumr, then we would assume that Coriantumr is of the brother of Jared's line too. Something there just seems to suggest to me almost a chance to begin again. You could have done that, Coriantumr. You could have started things over. The way Mosiah starts things over for Lehi. The way Noah started things over for Adam. Remember, Ether's prophecy was about a new heaven and a new earth. Coriantumr. This is your chance to begin anew yourself. You're a descendant of the brother of Jared. Be like him. Call upon the name of the Lord. Repent of your sins. Bring your people to a land of promise. But what happens is exactly the opposite. I'm going to do a lot of summarizing in these last three chapters. And in a way, Ether already summarizes them as he starts to explain them in verse 15, 16, 17. In 15, he talks about a great war among the people and talks about secret plans of wickedness. This group is out to destroy Coriantumr and usurp the kingdom, which seems to be the name of the game throughout Jaredite history. But in verse 16, Coriantumr had studied himself in all the arts of war and all the cunning of the world. Wherefore, he gave battle unto them who sought to destroy him. What a tragedy that all of his study went to war instead of peace that he studied cunning instead of covenant, which then explains verse 17, that he repented not, neither his fair sons nor daughters, neither the fair sons and daughters of Kohor, and I have no idea who that is, neither the fair sons and daughters of Korahor, and we don't have any idea who that is, and in fine, there were none of the fair sons and daughters upon the face of the whole earth who repented of their sins. So I guess it doesn't matter so much who Kohor and Korahor are at this time period. Across the board, everyone with the exception of Ether refuses to repent. That was the case in those previous chapters whenever a prophet would come and cry repentance also. That describes Jaredite history almost start to finish. War, secret plans, wickedness, refusing to repent, and fair sons and daughters. Remember, Jared's daughter was described as exceedingly fair. The first group that rebelled and left reassured themselves that more would be coming because their people were such fair sons and daughters. It even makes me think of Mormon's final lament over his people. O ye fair ones, so blessed and yet so cursed by what you did to yourselves. Verse 18 mentions secret combinations, fighting one another in order to obtain the kingdom. Remember, get power and to get gain. Verse 19, they fought much, they bled much. And then 20 and 21, we see these two lines come together. Ether meets Coriantumr. In verse 20, the Lord says to him, Go and prophesy unto Coriantumr, that if he would repent and all his household, the Lord would give unto him his kingdom and spare the people. Obviously, Ether himself isn't worried or wanting the kingdom for himself. Verse 21, otherwise they, the people of Coriantumr, should be destroyed, and all his household, save it were himself. You will be the only survivor. And the only reason that you'll survive is so that you can live to see the fulfilling of the prophecies which had been spoken concerning another people receiving the land for their inheritance. Coriantumr would receive a burial by them, 
and every soul should be destroyed, save it were Coriantumr. Coriantumr, you can either be the last man to stand or the first man to kneel. Repent of your sins. Come unto Christ. Change things. Start over again. Be a new brother of Jared. Bring about a new heaven, a new earth right here. Make this a promised land by keeping God's promises. Make it a choice land by choosing God. It's completely up to you. But, verse 22, a phrase we should come to expect. It came to pass that Coriantumr repented not. Neither his household, neither the people. So the wars didn't cease, and instead they sought to kill Ether as well. He flees and hides again in the cavity of the rock. Now from this moment forward, chapter 13, verse 23, until the end of the book of Ether, this is the story of Coriantumr in a nutshell. Coriantumr loses and then regains the kingdom. He loses some battles and wins others. He's wounded, but survives. He loses the kingdom again, is wounded again, keeps trying to either regain or retain the kingdom, is wounded yet again, this time with such deep wounds that he faints from blood loss, tries to repent, but his people refuse, keeps on fighting, is wounded again, and again faints again from blood loss, until eventually his life results in exactly the way that Ether had prophesied it would, here in the middle of chapter 13. That is the story of the rest of the book of Ether. And you can read it verse by verse on your own. But let me point out just a few details in the intervening verses that I think have some special relevance for you and me. Just a few phrases here and there. Chapter 13, verse 25, for example, speaks of war upon all the face of the land, every man with his band fighting for that which he desired. Sound like our day? And this doesn't have to be literal war. But do you see everyone with his band, this idea of tribalism as groups form around certain desires, and they're fighting everyone else that desires something different, every man with his band fighting for that which he desired? In verse 26, not only are there robbers, that suggests Gadianton-style secret combinations, but all manner of wickedness upon all the face of the land. Again, describe our day. All manner of wickedness. I mean, people are being sinful in creative ways these days. Things I never would have imagined possible. But it's all manner, and it's upon all the face. At the end of verse 31, this phrase, I think, is again applicable. There was none to restrain them. So interesting that when we first meet Ether, he couldn't be restrained because of the Spirit of God that was in him. Well, here, the people couldn't be restrained from their wickedness because of the Spirit of the devil that was in them. This is going to be a head-to-head -head fight to the finish between good and evil. And among the wicked, no one was holding them back. Have we gotten to a point, or are we aiming towards a point, where there are no reins on society's wishes? When evil is progressing unrestrained, no one standing up to it, no one trying to turn it back. Chapter 14, verse 1 speaks of a great curse upon all the land because of the iniquity of the people. And it's the same curse that Samuel the Lamanite prophesied of among the Nephites and which Mormons saw in fulfillment. Again, end of civilizations, this is what it starts to look like. If a man should lay his tool or his sword upon his shelf or upon the place whither he would keep it, behold, upon the morrow he could not find it, so great was the curse upon the land. That's the talk of things becoming slippery that things just 
fall through your fingers. You can't hold on to anything that matters to you. And yet in an attempt to do so, verse 2, everyone cleaves unto that which was his own with his hands. He wouldn't borrow, neither would he lend. Every man keeps the hilt of his sword in his right hand in the defense of his property and his life and his wives and children. Compare that to what Jesus taught when he descended among the people at Bountiful. To give to those that ask you, and even to those that would ask to borrow something, turn them not away. Be generous. Trust them that they need it. Trust that they'll return it to you again. Here, no one can be trusted. No one is trustworthy. And since everyone is just looking after number one, trying to meet their own needs, seeking their own power, getting their own gain, no wonder everyone stays armed and at the ready at every moment. Everyone I see is a potential enemy, someone trying to take something from me. So I'm armed to the hilt, sword in hand at all times. Have we gotten to that point? Or are we getting to it where we can't trust anyone? We're always worried about what people are going to try to take from us. And here I am to defend it to the death. Verse 8 speaks of secret combinations. Verse 10 speaks of secret combinations again. We studied that in depth last week. By verse 18, you meet one of our final antagonists standing alongside Coriantumr. His name is Shiz. And in verse 18, there went a fear of Shiz throughout all the land. Yea, a cry went forth throughout the land. Who can stand before the army of Shiz? Behold, he sweepeth the earth before him. And we sometimes feel that way when it comes to the wickedness that is spreading across the earth. Do we start to worry? Who can stand before it? Do we even try to? Or do we leave it to go run roughshod, to go unrestrained? By verse 19, you only have these two options now. Wicked A or wicked B. Wicked Shiz or wicked Coriantumr. Just like we saw at the end of Mormon's day. Wicked Nephites or wicked Lamanites. Take your pick, but either way, this is going to be a war of mutual annihilation. Verse 19, the people began to flock together in armies throughout all the face of the land, and they were divided. Some to the army of Shiz, some to the army of Coriantumr. Verse 21, so great and lasting had been the war, so long had been the scene of bloodshed and carnage, that the whole face of the land was covered with the bodies of the dead. War was still spreading so fast they couldn't even bury them. You get a sense for how fast this is all happening? Honestly, it reminds me of 2020, that I can't even, I'm not even done dealing with last week's problem before this week's problem emerges. That, you get a sense from here, we haven't even been able to bury yesterday's casualties before more get piled up from today. We cannot keep up with the casualties, the conflicts, the contention. The issues keep piling up. And in this case, more literally, the dead bodies do. Unburied, verse 23, is pretty disgusting. But metaphorically, it describes our day pretty well. The scent thereof went forth upon the face of the land, even upon all the face of the land. Wherefore the people became troubled by day and by night because of the scent thereof. There does seem to be a certain stench of sin. And it is troubling when there seems to be no escape from it. In those kinds of circumstances, I would want to be as close as I could be to the altar of incense the one thing that is bringing a sweet smell heavenward. There, inside the temple, before the veil, to enter the presence of God. That is the scent of sacrifice. 
of righteousness, of consecration, rather than the stench of sin brought about by these secret combinations. In verse 25, thus we see, here's one of Moroni's, that the Lord did visit them in the fullness of his wrath. Compare that to the way the Lord visited, was it Emer last week? The son of righteousness comes and ministers to that righteous Jaredite king. Well, here the Lord is visiting them in a different guise, as wrath, as destruction. Their wickedness and abominations had prepared a way for their everlasting destruction. Remember, it is by the wicked that the wicked are destroyed. Mormon taught us that. Now, the battles continue between these two until you get to verse 30 at the end. One of those instances where Coriantumr is wounded and lost so much blood that he faints. But this phrase is new. He's been wounded before. He's fainted before. But this time he was carried away as though he were dead. And I get a sense there that this is the end until it isn't. In other words, this is a dress rehearsal for death and judgment for you, Coriantumr. Is this really where you want things to end? You get a sense of what it's like to lose your life and yet to come back to your senses and decide, is that really how I want things to be over? Or will I repent? Will I change? Do I want something different on take two? Now, this time it actually worked to a degree. Chapter 15, verse 1, when Coriantumr had recovered of his wounds, he began to remember the words which Ether had spoken unto him. He woke up to Ether's prophecy because it almost didn't come true. Remember, the prophecy was, you'll outlive everyone. You'll see everyone's death but your own. Well, he got a chance to just see his own death in a manner of speaking, to experience it in a way. And he realized, I don't want that fulfilled. I want it to go a different way. In verse 2, he'd seen so many casualties, millions among his people, that he began to sorrow in his heart. And as a result of that sorrow, this is different than the kind of sorrow that Mormon saw among his tens of thousands of casualties. Remember, in his day, they were sorrowing, but he knew it was the sorrowing of the damned, not the godly sorrow he hoped for. Well, here, Coriantumr's sorrow is of the better sort. Verse 3, he began to repent of the evil which he had done. It took that much destruction. I sometimes wonder about that. If we keep ignoring opportunities to repent and the kind of cataclysmic calls to repentance that we're getting, what's it going to take before we finally are brought to our knees? Coriantumr began to repent of the evil which he had done. He began to remember the words which had been spoken by the mouth of all the prophets, and he saw them that they were fulfilled thus far. Every wit his soul mourned and refused to be comforted. Better than just feeling this sorrow and repenting of his sins inwardly, he started to take an outward action. In verse 4, he writes an epistle to his enemy, Shiz, and simply desires peace. If you'll spare my people, I'll give you the kingdom that you want. I see now, finally, that there's something more important than simply getting power and gain. Unfortunately, where it says that he began to repent and began to remember the words of the prophets. He should have begun that a long time before. Because even though it didn't seem too late for him to change, it had gotten to the point where it was too late for Shiz or for Coriantumr's own people to change. In verse 5, Shiz refuses the offer. I'll take the kingdom, that's fine, but I want to take your life along with it. And by 6, 
I don't even think that would have worked because the people wouldn't repent of their iniquity. They're stirred up to anger against the people of Shiz. Perhaps there was some kind of loyalty towards Coriantumr to the point that they didn't even care about the promise of preservation if it cost Coriantumr his life. It's like, no, we're going to fight to the death. They're stirred up to anger against the people of Shiz and the battles continue. So again, it's interesting that Coriantumr could not change his people. He couldn't even save them from themselves. And the war continues. By verse 11, the wars have moved them towards a place of finality, the hill Rama, which was the same hill where Moroni says his father, Mormon, did hide up the records unto the Lord, which were sacred. Here things are coming full circle. The same place where the Nephite civilization came to an end is where the Jaredite civilization came to an end. And it's what emerges from that place, the Book of Mormon, that is meant to keep us, Act 3, from coming to its own destruction as well. In a way, therefore, for both the Jaredites and the Nephites, the Book of Mormon becomes their last words. It is their grave marker, in a way. And that epitaph upon these two civilizational headstones says to repent and come unto Christ. Avoid the fate that we brought upon ourselves. Be wiser than we have been. May the strike one against Jaredite civilization and the strike two against Nephite civilization never become a strike three against modern civilization. Learn the lesson of Cumorah. Learn the lesson that the book that emerges from it is trying to teach. Verse 13, Ether watches all of this unfold. 14, for four years, they're gathering all the people, every single one. They were trying to get every last ounce of strength to one side or the other. Verse 15, everyone gathered to one army or the other. This is a universal polarization that involves both men and women and children. There is no escaping the choice that you and I must make between good and evil. And if we don't make the choice of good, will it someday come to the point where the only choices we have are against rival evils? When wickedness goes unrestrained, that's the eventual outcome. In 16, you see howling and lamentation. In 17, more howlings, more mournings. Verse 19, the scariest of all. Behold, the Spirit of the Lord had ceased striving with them. Even the Holy Ghost laid down his arms. We've seen that with Mormons people as well. Someone's going to give up the fight first. Either us or the Spirit will yield to the desires of the other. And if we keep fighting God, eventually he stops fighting back. He surrenders if we don't. By that time, the verse continues, Satan had full power over the hearts of the people. They were given up unto the hardness of their hearts, the blindness of their minds, that they might be destroyed. They had given up on God. They had given up themselves to hardness and blindness. They couldn't feel the Spirit. They couldn't see the future that lay before them. In 20, they fight all that day and sleep on their swords. 21, they do it again. 22, they are drunken with anger. 
uh, when iniquity becomes so intoxicating, when in this addiction towards sin to the point that you know you are destroying yourself, but there's no way to avoid it. By verse 26, the battle keeps whittling down both armies until there are hardly any left, but they still can't see the writing on the wall. Mutually assured destruction is what it's called in our day. And the acronym of that is telling. This is madness. And yet they are not avoiding it. Verse 26, they ate, they slept, and they prepared for death on the morrow. Compare that to earlier promises of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Well, they're going to eat and drink. They're going to sleep one last time because tomorrow we will die. And what's missing? No merriment here. Joy in iniquity was always a facade and mirage to begin with. Wickedness never was happiness, and they're finally getting to see that. In 27, they fight for three hours and faint for the loss of blood. Still not done, verse 28. The fighting continues until by the time verse 29 ends, all have fallen by the sword, save it were Coriantumr and Shiz, and Shiz had fainted with the loss of blood. Now, verse 30 and 31 are a little disgusting, so brace yourself. It came to pass that when Coriantumr had leaned upon his sword, that he rested a little. He smote off the head of Shiz. And it came to pass that after he had smitten off the head of Shiz, that Shiz raised up on his hands and fell. And after that he had struggled for breath, he died. Now, that is disgusting. But I think it teaches a powerful lesson. Even after being decapitated, Shiz's body keeps struggling for life. I don't know of a better visual aid for what we might call unrighteous reflexes. Elder Maxwell talked about righteous reflexes, where we've yielded to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and become a new person, a saint through the atonement of Christ. But an unrighteous reflex, this is truly brainless wickedness because the brain is gone. It's disconnected from the rest of the body. And yet the body itself is still just trying to do something, to go on, to continue fighting. And are we guilty of that sometimes? Where we want to keep fighting even when we know we've been defeated. That seems to be Lucifer's approach. Still struggling for breath even when he knows his fight is futile. In 32, Coriantumr falls to the earth and yet again becomes as if he had no life. This is a second chance for a new beginning, another dress rehearsal of death and judgment that he's just passed through. When he finally does come to himself again, he has some choices to make. He can no longer spare his people. But will he have an opportunity to affect any other people? And he does. Remember, as had been prophesied, and we saw the history of it way back in the book of Omni, that Coriantumr outlives his own civilization long enough to overlap with the Mulekite civilization. He stays with them for nine months before he dies, which I think is fitting, since that's the gestation period of a new life. And as he is coming to the end of his and, and carves his life story and the story of his people into this stone that King Mosiah would eventually translate, as if he were trying to give birth to a civilization that might be wiser than his was. As is recorded in the book of Omni, 
What he had carved on that stone was about his first parents who came out from the tower at the time the Lord confounded the language of the people. And the severity of the Lord fell upon them. Notice this. According to his judgments, which are just. And their bones lay scattered in the land northward. You understand what Coriantumr came to understand? That the entire destruction of his people he saw as just deserts for the wickedness of those people. We got what was coming to us. That's what all the wicked will say when they are punished. Jacob says it that way in 2 Nephi chapter 9. We will be constrained to acknowledge to God, thy judgments are just. My transgressions are mine. I never handed them over to you. I never repented of them. And not just this stone that Coriantumr engraved, but the bones that are scattered across the North Country as testament that we must repent because God's judgments are just when they could have been merciful had we pled for that mercy. The book of Ether then ends, verse 33. The Lord spake unto Ether and said unto him, Go forth. And he went forth and beheld that the words of the Lord had all been fulfilled, not that he'd ever doubted them. He finished his record, and a hundredth part I have not written. And he hid them in a manner that the people of Limhi did find them. The Mulekites would find Coriantumr and his engraved stone. The Nephites, specifically the people of Limhi, would find the record of Ether. The stone would be translated by Mosiah I. The 24 plates of Ether would be translated by Mosiah II. And thus the Nephites receive two witnesses from a dead civilization, speaking to a yet living one to be wiser than they were. Fast forward to our day and the cycle has repeated. We now have two witnesses, the Jaredite civilization and the Nephite, both pleading to us to be wiser than they have been. And as if both of those civilizations were speaking to us, the book of Ether ends with words from Ether that Moroni himself could easily echo. Again, these are parallel prophets. The last words which are written by Ether are these. And try to hear Ether and Moroni both speaking them in unison. Whether the Lord will that I be translated or that I suffer the will of the Lord in the flesh, it mattereth not, if it so be that I am saved in the kingdom of God. Amen. What happens to me in this life doesn't matter at all compared to what happens to me in the next. Father, thy will be done. I have been doing thy will, and I have come to trust it completely. As this same ether had said in that previous beautiful chapter, chapter 12, you can almost hear him saying for himself at life's end, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world. That was the only world that he had yet to look for. Yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. That verse describes the mission and the mentality of Ether beautifully. It does the same for Moroni. May it be the same for us, May we with surety hope for a better world 
And that hope will only come as we exercise our faith in Christ.